Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to all of those of you around the world in our Zoom room and uh, Facebook Live. My name is uh, Professor Hisham Mahana. I'm the director of the Institute for Global Innovation, uh, the IGI, and an academic head and neck surgeon here at uh, the University of Birmingham. Uh, the IGI is a signature institute uh, for the university. Uh, we aim to inspire and deliver world-leading multidisciplinary research that finds solutions uh, to the world's most pressing challenges. And we do that by uh, bringing together teams of researchers from different disciplines, um, each team looking at a specific challenge. Um, our main themes are gender inequality, transnational crime, uh, resilient cities and safe and reliable water, as well as clean air, aging and frailty, and antimicrobial resistance. The COVID-19 pandemic is one of the biggest challenges that the global community has faced in recent times. And our research teams at the IGI and in the university have a key role in playing um, uh, in the struggle against the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Examining all its aspects, um, uh, all the, the aspects on our lives, finding solutions for the challenges that are arising. At the IGI, we've also started some specific initiatives um, on COVID-19. One is called the COVID Corpus, an international database of all the ongoing research on COVID. Um, all different types of research, not just medical, but also social, economic, etc. And the aim is to help researchers and funders avoid duplication uh, and to facilitate collaboration between uh, researchers across the world. And of course, we've also started this series of online events called Living with the Pandemic, where we bring together panels of our experts uh, who will give a short talk about uh, their research and perspectives on different aspects of living with the pandemic, followed by your chance um, to ask the panel questions. Today is the second of these um, uh, sessions or series, uh, and it's about uh, essentially the easing of the lockdown uh, what are the, the, the risks and how can we avoid them? There will be three 10-minute uh, presentations. I'm pretty strict with time and I've told our panel that I will interrupt after, three, after 10 minutes. And the reason for that is that I'd like to allow about 20 minutes uh, for you to ask questions. Um, so please send us your questions through the Zoom room uh, Q&A function and uh, through Facebook. And we'll endeavor to answer as many as we can. Uh, also, please follow us on Twitter uh, at bigideas underscore UOB. So now uh, I'd like to welcome our speakers. We've got a great lineup for you today. But first, um, Professor Dominique Moran, who's my co-chair and the deputy director of the IGI. Dom will take over if I drop out or pass out. Um, and uh, we'll also be selecting the questions that you send through. And then to our speakers. Uh, our first speaker is Professor John Bryson. John is Professor of um, Enterprise and Economic Geography at uh, Birmingham Business School. His uh, research interests include understanding rapid adaptation during times of disruptive and radical change, including citizen-led uh, end-user innovation 
and the development of alternative solutions in response to private and public sector failure. That's taken a long time to say, but John is a, is a very clever uh, person and he covers a lot of things in his work. Our second speaker is Professor Willem Van Sheik. Uh, Van Sheik. Um, Willem is Professor of um, Microbiology and Infection and has been studying the biology and genomics of microbes uh, for 20 years. In March this year, um, Willem was amongst the first scientists to speak out when the government um, was slow to implement social distancing um, uh, to stop the spread of COVID-19. Uh, so uh, welcome, Willem. And last but not least, uh, Professor Heather Widows. Uh, Heather is the John Ferguson Professor of Global Ethics in the Department of Philosophy. She served on the Nuffield Council of, uh, on Bioethics from, for six years um, up till 2020. And before that, she was a member of the UK Biobank's Ethical and Governance Council, uh, again, for many years. Um, thank you, Heather, for joining us. So uh, without further ado, uh, John, I think we'll start with you. So over to you, please. Right, very many thanks. I'm just going to start sharing my screen with you. Right, so you should have a shared screen. So I hold the chair in Enterprise and Economic Geography at the University of Birmingham. And I'm interested in city regions and the development of an integrated approach to city regions. And I'm interested in radical change and rapid change and bricolage and improvisation, the ways in which individuals, households, firms and sectors and governments respond rapidly to change. Um, so my presentation comes from a blog that I put up online at the University of Birmingham in very early March 2020 on social distancing and understanding some of the dimensions of social distancing. Now, the uh, my presentation has to start with the one thing that a pandemic has this sort of uh, narrative about, which is the, the R naught value or the reproduction rate of a virus. You can't talk about a, vi a pandemic, you can't understand a pandemic without understanding the reproduction number. Now the reproduction number, you can, you can think about it using the acronym DOTS. It, in, in, it involves the duration of the virus or the infection period, the length of time a person with the virus is going to be infec infectious, five days, four days, 12 days. The opportunity of the contact rate, the number of social interactions a typical infected person should engage in. So if I meet someone, how many, how many, how, what's the likelihood that I'm going to spread the virus to, to somebody else? The transmission rate, the, the value that defines how the, the virus is going to be transmitted between people, between infected and uninfected people. And then the susceptibility rate, which is how immune the population is. Now with COVID-19, the problem we have is we can't alter the duration or the infectious period. We can't alter the susceptibility period unless we're going to have um, various forms of um, immunity within the population if we have a, a viable vac vaccine. So all we can do is alter the opportunity and then transmission. And this is where uh, social distancing comes in. This is where all the interventions that the various governments and countries around the world have been trying to do. Now with COVID-19, when I first wrote about the R naught value for COVID-19, we were talking about an R value of 2.5. So what that means is that every person who is infected may transmit that infection to 2.5 people in the population. 
Now, the latest uh, research on the, the R0 for COVID-19 is that it is a medium of 5.7. I place that in context in that the flu pandemic of uh, 1918, that R0 uh, factor was somewhere between 1.4 and 2.8. So if COVID-19 is medium 5.7, we have a significant problem within our wider population in terms of controlling transmission. Now, the problem we have with social distancing is the problem that all social scientists have and all governments have and all employers have, people. How does one manage, how do you manage people? How do you persuade people to uh, develop a responsible approach to a crisis? Now, here we have a, a causation issue. So COVID-19 is, is an issue about probabilistic causation. So what this means is that if I go and break social distancing, I may cause an infection, but I may not. Um, what we really need is something which is a, a more direct form of causation. So I go along and visit Hisham face to face and 10 minutes later, Hisham's dead. So me going to visit Hisham is going to be really quite um, an unlikely effect. So persuading people that they may be causing a problem and they need to take social distancing seriously is a real challenge. Now, the problem is people tend not to act rationally. They tend to respond on the basis of habit, routine and repetition. And many people think that COVID-19 is not going to have any impact upon them. So governments need to project consistent messages. They need to nudge us to alter our behavior. They need to try and highlight the relationship between cause and effect and what uh, uh, inappropriate social distancing might do to viral transmission. So how do we get to responsible versus irresponsible behavior with COVID-19? Now here we have two images. So Dorset last weekend. We have a, an interesting issue of inappropriate or irresponsible uh, social distancing vast crowd of people coming to Long and to enjoy what was left of the British summer last Saturday. A whole series of people were injured as they were trying to engage in all sorts of inappropriate activity in, 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 in the sea, but we have a potential opportunity for mass transmission of COVID-19. We just needed one or two people to be infected, to walk through that particular crowd, to cough and spread the virus, and we would have an interesting issue. We then have Dominic Cummings. Now, I've been ignoring the Dominic Cummings media um, story on the grounds that the Dominic Cummings media story is the wrong story. So what is the, the, the right story about Dominic Cummings? So Dominic um, produced, uh, engaged in some foolish behavior by traveling a long distance. So traveling a long distance means that if his car broke down, uh, he would have then put the, the security services at potential risk, those that were going to recover him. Now, if you look at the photograph here, what we have is the press pack. Now the press pack here is not socially distant. We have a series of individuals in London who are heavily connected across the city. And that particular group of journalists and photographers, they are a prime source of COVID-19 transmission. So the correct interpretation of the Cummings story is not about Cummings making a, an inappropriate decision, but it's about the irresponsibility of the British press and the way in which the British press and the journalists are acting to spread virus around London and the Southeast. So if we think about COVID-19, the latest paper um, published in July um, in the Journal of Emerging of Infectious Diseases, they identify an R factor of 5.7. And what this paper argues, the only way of controlling that is to try and get herd immunity of 82%, within a population. And the only way to do that is through active surveillance, 
contact tracing, quarantine, and incredibly strong, effective social distancing to try and stop the virus. So coming out of COVID is an attempt to try and persuade the individual, um, all individuals, all households, all companies to take social distancing really seriously, because without that, we're going to see a second wave and a third wave of the pandemic. So one of the questions I'm interested in is how do we get ourselves into the COVID-19 crisis? And the answer is we didn't learn. So SARS in 2003, uh, a, a, pre a pilot for COVID-19, whole series of papers published on SARS. If you look at some of the core papers on SARS and the impacts, they're cited 12 or 13 times. So what we need to make sure with COVID-19 that we do learn and we do alter our behavior radically and rapidly. And then for the UK, um, last year, I did a whole series of workshops in the United States in which I got shouted down by my social science colleagues because what I was doing was predicting a pandemic. And I was arguing we we're going to have a pandemic that was going to shut down the global economy. And everybody says, no, that's not going to happen. And then over the last couple of months, I had a series of emails from American colleagues who attended those workshops saying, you were right, you were scarily right. So my current prediction is expect future pandemics. We are going to get an awful lot more. And the reason why we're going to get an awful lot more is increasing density of the human population and increasing connectivity. Now for the United Kingdom, one of the interesting figures is that Britons travel more than any other nationality. So in 2018, 8.6% of all the people who were flying were British. Next in line was the United States and then China. Now that level of connectivity means that we are exposed to the rapid transmission of viruses across the world incredibly rapidly. Now the final point I want to re remind you about is that the social distancing economy we're currently entering, um, there are people who will benefit and people who will lose. The people who will benefit are those who can cope and survive within this new socially distanced economy. Those who are engaging in face-to-face -face -face activities and occupations are going to be more vulnerable. My final slide is just to highlight that I have three published papers in press that are dealing with various aspects of COVID-19. One paper, the Town Planning Review paper, is about how do you plan African cities to reduce disease transmission. The second paper is about reducing risk within value chains. And the third paper is about radical uh, um, improvisation amongst uh, British churches as they went from being face-to-face um, uh, -face church services to virtual virtual services. That's the end of my presentation. I'm going to hand back to Hisham and Central Control at IGI, and I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Thank you very much, uh, John. Fascinating insights. Thank you very much. Now, it's a pleasure to um, ask uh, Willem uh, to uh, give his talk. So please, Willem, if you can uh, um, give your talk. Thank you. Uh, Willem, if you can switch on your... Sorry. Uh, thank you very much, Hisham, for that introduction. So I'll be talking about COVID-19 um, and lessons that we can learn from other countries that are ahead of us in the uh, epidemic curve. Um, so I'm going to give a very short overview of COVID-19 in Europe and then uh, the lessons that we can learn from other countries. And I'm um, sure that many of you have seen graphs like these before about the number of deaths uh, um, that are attributed to COVID-19 across the continent. And it's one of the things that's immediately obvious to be in graphs like these is that some countries are doing markedly better than others, 
even when uh, when taking into account the size of a country like uh, the population of Germany is roughly the same as the population of the United Kingdom, but uh, clearly the number of of cases of COVID nineteen is 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 a lot lower in Germany than it is in in the UK. And I think that there's a lot to be learned from how successful countries like Germany, Germany, Austria, and Denmark have uh, are now also releasing lockdown. And I will be covering that in this presentation. Uh, so, but first I want you to uh, look at this figure, which I think is actually, I, I'm just putting this in to emphasize what an incredible crisis we are going through. So this is an overview of the excess mortality in, in Europe over a four year period since early 2016. And you can see that there's always this sort of shape of the curve where there is a seasonal flu around, uh, around uh, the start of every year, which, uh, which leads to an excess um, death uh, during, during the year. Uh, but this peak clearly is uh, significantly higher. So this is the COVID-19 peak is clearly higher. Um, and it would have gone much higher than this if, if not practically all countries in Europe had done some um, interventions to stop the spread of, uh, of COVID-19. Uh, and that now the, the, the excess mortality is going back to more or less normal levels. But of course, there is this risk for a second, second wave. Um, if you split out that excess mortality across different uh, age groups, um, there's something that, again, many of you will know, uh, and that's that older individuals are at a higher risk of dying from uh, COVID-19. But the point that I want to make here that uh, children, so those under 14, actually have no additional risk. There's absolutely no evidence here that there is an increased risk of, of death due to COVID-19 in, in young children. But actually, uh, young adults are at, a, at an increased risk. So we can see that the excess mortality is higher than what would normally be seen in this, in this population. And of course, this should inform uh, decisions on, on uh, what to do with, uh, with lockdown. Um, so all governments across Europe are following essentially the same strategy for releasing uh, lockdown. <clears throat> and that's that it's a gradual uh, process and that people have to adapt to a new normal. Uh, social distancing will still need to be in place uh, and people have to adapt to that life for some time will be quite different from what we're used to. Um, I want to cover just one aspect of releasing lockdown and that's the, the concept of, of uh, children and schools and how we can, uh, how other countries are reopening schools um, uh, safely, uh, and then some other insights that I want to share with you. Um, so there's quite a bit known. I've already shown you that graph with excess mortality. And so it's very clear that serious disease is extremely rare among children. And children are not thought to play a major role in COVID-19 transmission. There's no outbreaks that are really particularly large that are associated, <clears throat> for example, with schools or other, other places where there's, uh, there's many children. Uh, but of course, there's many uncertainties in this aspect as there are so many uncertainties in COVID-19 in general. Um, and the reason why governments has, have closed schools may actually not be to lower the number of contacts of children 
but also of uh, adults who are at a much higher risk of transmitting the disease, but also of developing serious disease. Uh, and this is something that is sometimes overlooked. When children stay at home, uh, their parents uh, do not go out as much as they uh, used to do. Also, teachers do not have to travel. They do not have to go to school. So this will minimize the number of contacts. And that is one of the reasons why school closures already in the Spanish flu uh, outbreak in 1918-1919 was used as a, uh, as a measure to minimize uh, the transmission of flu during that time. Um, so of course, uh, closing schools has major social consequences. Um, uh, for example, there's an educational attainment gap will, uh, will become larger in, in many countries. And obviously this will have very serious effects along the line. So this is also one of the reasons why many countries are now working to reopen schools. Um, and um, so far, this has gone reasonably well across the continent. So uh, many countries have put in specific precautions, like, for example, putting in 50% attendance to retain social distancing. And this has, in some cases, led to a small uh, and most of the time only temporary increase in the R rate, but it's still below one in almost every country in Europe, that I, as I, far as I'm aware. So a very uh, country that has done extremely well in terms of COVID-19 is Austria, which is actually kind of surprising when you think of it because it's close to Italy, which was the epicenter of the epidemic in, in February of this, year's, of this year. So they've been able to reopen schools now for about three weeks. And that has only led to a handful of extra cases, no large outbreaks. Uh, for example, they've had four cases in, in, in schools in, across Vienna, the capital of Austria, per, per week. Um, and there has not been any evidence that it has led to sustained transmission of COVID-19. Um, and the reason why the Austrians have been able to do this is because they, they have been able to um, rapidly test um, any cases that were suspected of having COVID-19. Uh, they try to implement social distancing uh, in their schools, even though, of course, with younger children, that is very difficult. And initially, they also required uh, the, um, the children to wear face masks. But that, I think they've now decided that's actually not being helpful or um, face masks are, uh, the compliance was very low. And that's why it's no longer required since the 1st of June. And of course, there's we're, we're too soon uh, in, the, uh, in, these, in these measures to determine whether that's really going to affect the spread of COVID-19 in, uh, in Austria. So if you look across Europe, so where we now see outbreak clusters, um, uh, they are in, in different places, but they all share some, um, some aspects of that makes them similar. So for example, church services in Germany have been linked to outbreaks, middle sorting offices in, in, um, in um, Austria, meat processing plants in the Netherlands and Germany, uh, restaurants and shisha bars bo uh, both in Germany, particularly when, uh, for example, there were illegal parties in these places where so social distancing broke down entirely. And unfortunately, care homes in all these countries are still at a very high risk of developing outbreaks. 
And of course, all of these can lead to local return to lockdown or school closures to minimize again and to basically keep people in their homes. And this is uh, not to test your knowledge of German, but this is something that, uh, that uh, was published yesterday about uh, a corona outbreak in the German university town, town of Göttingen, uh, where they had a, an outbreak linked to one of these uh, shisha bars. And uh, as, a, as a precautionary measure, they basically closed down all the schools until the weekend. And I think that is something that we'll probably see in more countries when there are local outbreaks of COVID-19. So uh, a couple of lessons to learn from other countries. Um, and I think uh, John also mentioned this. So it's very important to have clear and unambiguous communication. I really liked how Japan has done a communication in terms of uh, the spread of COVID-19. This is the English version, uh, uh, version of a poster that they, that they published uh, some weeks ago already, where it asked people to avoid the three C's, so closed spaces, crowded spaces, and close contact settings, and particularly where these three C's uh, coincide. And I think this is particularly um, uh, clear communication and unambiguous. Um, the other uh, point that some countries are implementing is travel restrictions. Um, but it only works if local numbers of cases are low. So this is a map from the Czech government. Uh, the Czech Republic has also done uh, really well in containing COVID-19. And this is a map of countries that they are comfortable with having tourists come to the Czech Republic uh, without any further testing. So the countries in green do not need any testing to visit um, um, the Czech Republic. The countries in yellow and obviously in red, which are seen as high-risk countries, are countries where there's still more transmission. The number of cases is, is uh, higher, significantly higher than in the Czech Republic. So there's a risk of importation of cases in, uh, into the Czech Republic. Um, this also means that in a country like the UK, where the number of cases are uh, considerably higher than in other countries, across the world, it doesn't really make much sense right now to implement travel restrictions. Indeed, if we would bring people from the Czech Republic, for example, into the UK, we would actually uh, slowly dilute the number of, um, of, uh, of COVID-19 cases that we have in the country. And then as a final point, um, and this is also uh, a lesson that many countries have learned by now, so if you want to release lockdown, you need to have efficient testing um, uh, and a tracing infrastructure, a tracing of contacts so that you can contact people that have transmitted the disease to each other. And you can do that, let's say, very in an almost old-fashioned way by simply phoning people and asking them if they have symptoms and if they, then if they need to quarantine, uh, uh, if they do, they need to quarantine or they need to be tested, but you can also use um, app-based uh, tracing, which is uh, still very much in development and which, uh, uh, which um, the next speaker, Professor Heather Widows, will disc uh, discuss in more details. And I would like to leave it at that. Thank you very much, Hisham. Thank you very much, uh, Willem. Really interesting lessons there, um, uh, which we'll come back to. Uh, and so now, uh, if I may ask Heather, uh, if you could uh, take over, thank you very much.
No problem. This is where I try and share my screen. Okay, so some of you may have read the uh, brief that me and my colleague Jean McHale wrote, uh, I think last week, there's us looking a little less dishevelled from uh, lock than we are in lockdown life. And really, the messages that we gave there are the messages that I just want to return to and maybe give some more detail on. So the main point of the brief is that if you want to track, trace and contain the virus using an app, you just don't need a centralised app. You do not need to hold central data to do that job. So given the ethical and legal worries, then the real question, the, the single take home message of our brief was, why use this one when we don't have to? The ethical and legal issues that we are worried about are this list. So we're worried about privacy, uh, when you download the app, you download your postcode. And of course, if you develop symptoms, then you say so and you get phoned up, etc. So obviously you're identifiable. But the real issue about privacy is that they're talking about holding this data for five years if you then don't go on to test positive and up to 20 years if you do. Now, so the amount of time in which identification is possible is really quite extensive and identification always happens when you triangulate or you compare to another database. And there's also worries, and this is something that uh, very many scientists have been concerned about and writing open letters to various European governments about, is the surveillance and mission creep that's implied by this kind of data capture. A second issue is about just what the data is going to be used for um, and used for in the future. Remember the kind of 20 year horizon. And there's a question about whether actually data for future research is a motivation as much as containing the virus. Something I'm going to talk about quite a lot is the issue of consent. Right, Consent is usually the ethical value that we use when we regulate research, and it's completely missing from the government's discussion about this. The fact that we voluntarily download the app is certainly not consent to our data being used for all kinds of future research of which we are not yet aware. So while exceptional times do call for exceptional measures, they need to be proportional to the extent of the emergency. And it's not obvious that that data needs to be held beyond the emergency. Indeed, that's what the Joint Commission for Human Rights has requested. And then also the messages that were being given, you know, if you want clear messaging, we're not being given clear messaging about this. We've been told to download the app to help the NHS. And this looks like suspiciously like a way of inducing us to do this. The stated aim of the app is to minimise the spread of COVID-19 and move towards reducing the lockdown measures. And that's the uh, message that's come out very, very strongly about the use of the app. Although it has gone a little bit quieter over the last couple of weeks, so may maybe it didn't go so well or not as well as we've been led to believe. So in order to reassure us, the government has adopted these six principles, which were given to them by the Ethics Advisory Board, which is an advisory group about which, again, we've heard very, very little. So these principles, the Ethics Advisory Board gave their conditional support to the use of the app if these principles were adhered to. And quite interestingly, they stated, and I quote, that they would conditionally support on the information we have available to us at this point in time. And there's been some discussion in the national press about whether, in fact, the board itself has split. And my 
well they be split because these are really quite odd ethical principles right so the first one is value right there needs to be no benefit for society in general to justify and again i quote any adverse consequences to individuals so right, we're anticipating adverse consequences or that wouldn't be there uh, impact that we need to know it's going to be an effective tool security and privacy right the data collected should be minimized and protected well arguably we've already broken this principle because if we wanted to minimize data collection we wouldn't use a centralized app at all accountability there needs to be a reliable understandable decision making process but we certainly don't have that because we don't know why we're using this app and not a decentralized app transparency Again, there are real worries about the lack of this. And the last principle of control is a really interestingly worded principle. So users should be able to see what data is held about them so they can understand how it is impacting on decisions. Well, that doesn't sound like control, right? Understanding how your data is being used is not the same as controlling it. So these principles are at best ambiguous and opaque and vague. We may already have broken them. And if we haven't broken them, then it's hard to see what teeth they have, what does it require or prevent. So the second aim of the app that the government quite clearly states, but has not been publicised very much, is that it is a means to collect additional data in a privacy safe way for use by the NHS and public health to better understand COVID-19 and to manage the pandemic. Which again begs the question about really is that all? Because if you're keeping for 20 years, that doesn't look like all that's going on. And the language about research is not focused on the pandemic, it's focused on research in general. And throughout the document, the language of donation is given, not languages about research participation. And obviously when you donate, it is a gift. By definition, when you give something, you hand it over for the other person to use as they see fit, it is a giving up of control. So this is the exact wording in the document. Users may give specific agreement to voluntarily provide additional data. Agreement will be sought from people who are willing to donate their data for research. The data that is donated for research will only be available to those who have been approved by the NHS, so approved by the NHS. And again, the Joint Commission on Human Rights pointed out that that actually opens the door for the data to be used in general. The key question for an ethicist is what's happened to consent? Why is consent missing in action? It's not mentioned at all in the government response. And they seem to be using the fact that you voluntarily download the app, perhaps for one purpose, as consent for your data to be used in what are potentially a whole range of ways. And it's never been the case in any research ethics. You can do proxy consent by the fact that you voluntarily act in some way. Right? That is not how we normally do consent in any context. So the ethics advisory board does mention consent in their document, but again, they do it in a really unusual way. Um, they talk about broader societal consent, which is not a standard understanding of consent, right? Usually you consent to the use of your own tissue or your own data. Um, and we're not even sure what that might mean, right? So can there be sort of general public consent of the British public to use my Heather's personal data and data that may tell you about those related to me. And what if there are downstream harms, right? There's a whole load of potential discrimination that follows from this. If it turns out that I or those related to me are particularly susceptible to COVID-19, we don't know what kind of harms will accrue going forward. There could be issues about employability or insurance and all kinds of discrimination issues going forward. 
and also it's a valuable data set. So should those who contribute it have no control over who profits from it or what it's used for? And if you remember the donation language, it currently looks like that is not envisaged. So for consent to be valid, we normally think that it has to be informed. Now, for obvious reasons, it is impossible to be informed about future research. It's unknown. That's the bottom line about future research. So the code that governs global research says that informed consent must be informed of the aims, methods, sources of funding, any possible conflicts of interest, institutional affiliations of the research, anticipated benefits, and the list goes on. Now, of course, it's impossible to give informed consent about unknown future research by unknown future researchers. So there are ways that we get around this, right? You can do other things in addition to or instead of consent. So either you can have additional safeguards or governance mechanisms to ensure that there are protections and mitigations against future harms. So you need a mechanism by which if those kind of harms um, ensue, you can uh, do other things to mitigate them or and this is what happens in a lot of studies, you return to participants and ask their consent to be part of future research once you know what that is. So we're not doing the normal things that we would do to ensure that research going forward is ethical. And we're doing a lot of it under the cover of the NHS, right? So the British public have very strong emotional attachment to the NHS. So we may underfund it, we may arguably privatise it by the back door, but politicians don't say things like that because the NHS is vote winning. Remember the Olympic Games and the opening. Right? So even more that is true at the current context when the NHS are our heroes and our key workers. So the British public may be much less comfortable about giving data to future unknown researchers than they are to downloading an app to help the NHS. And then the final point is about being again an outlier in Europe. So only the UK, France and Norway are even considering a centralised app. And there's a much more public debate about the issues of privacy and other concerns in those countries than there is in the UK right now. Germany, in fact, did a U-turn. It was going to use a centralised app. And then for these reasons, it decided not to and went for a decentralised app. And then there's also a really practical reason, right? Lots of countries are going for the decentralised apps. Decentralised apps speak to each other. By definition, a centralised app is a national app. The data is stored centrally by the NHS, Public Health England, etc. doesn't speak to other apps. And COVID-19 is the epitome of a global problem. Global problems need global solutions. So to sum up, we, the British public, we don't need a centralised app if what we want to do is track, trace and contain. They, whoever they are, and part of the problem is we don't know who they are or will be, do need a centralised app if they're going doing a data grab. And one that we're more likely to accept if we think this is going to help the NHS. So there's real ethical worries about privacy, data use, the lack and impossibility of valid consent. And very practically, the centralised app won't speak to other apps. So it's likely to be less effective as well as less ethical. And I should now hand back to Hisham. I think I'm 30 seconds over. Thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, uh, a great talk and a worrying talk to uh, Heather. So thank you. Um, so now we'll we'll bring up all the panelists um, uh, and John, if we can see you as well, that'd be great. Um, so I've got lots of questions, lots of questions coming up. Um, Heather, be, whilst we're on the issue of privacy, um, we had a, a couple of questions, one from Eva Sayers and one from Anna Libra and one from Anonymous. Um, 
uh, asking about what's the difference between a centralized app and a non-centralized app. And as far as we understand, the non-centralized apps are like Apple and Google. Are, do they have any, you know, are there any concerns with them? So if you could please answer that. Um. Right, so, so, so the basic difference is just that the decentralized app holds no data in any central database at all. The data is stored on the phone and then it leaves the phone. So, you know, you might have conspiracy theories about Apple and Google and you know, as a global ethicist, you can imagine that I'm not always the biggest fan of big international corporations. But in this instance, it's the very fact that you centrally hold data on a database and then use it for other things and compare it against other databases. It's always going to have the potential to be identifying compared to a decentralized app where it is only on the phone and then it goes. And, and do you have any, can it, are there any specific worries about decentralized apps? Uh, there are much less so. So, right, so obviously, I'm an ethicist and not a, a, um, a computer scientist. So, you know, it, it seems like it's very much less likely that that will be stored and used. Um, and certainly, it won't be collated and, and have profit in it. And, and the identifying nature of it just doesn't maintain. So, you know, some of the people defending this have made examples like, oh, well, you know, you give your data to um, store cars and that's held centrally, right? And all that's true, right? We might have big privacy concerns about that and much more so than we would about other things. But when you're talking about medical data, and particularly data of this sort, which, you know, um, personal data, uh, when it's connected to medical data, and uh, particularly in the genetic era, has long-term ability to be identifying, not just of you, but also of those related to you. So the information that you're giving out um, is potentially valuable for a very long time, um, and not just of you, but of, the, but of um, family members going forward. So it's a very different thing than giving out, you know, your preferences for Rice Krispies, for instance. And I'm not trying to, sure. to generate what you can do with that information but there are and, really serious issues about long-term identification from medical information that will lead to discrimination uh insurance companies employability who's allowed to go there so we've had a lot of talk about immunity passports um you know with very little thought about the injustice in that you know certain sectors of society where automatically struggle where we've seen in covid inequalities coming to the fore very dramatically as you know who dies um who gets ill who can survive well in this? And um, none of that is being taken into account. Great, great. And 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 I don't want to spend the, uh, you know all the time on um, on the centralized versus non-centralized app. But there's a follow-up question from Ed Smith. Um, uh, would you say the approach uh, is centralized? It's a it's a controversial question. So is is it centralized? Do you think simply due to incompetence and the fact that the history of the NHS has been uh, about central control and micromanagement, rather than a, a deliberate ploy to access and misuse data? I don't know. Um, I, I do think that there. I don't, I don't think it can be just that because of the way that the rest of Europe is responding. We are an outlier there and those debates are not being aired in the UK in the way that they are elsewhere. And in fact, they're sort of being poo-pooed and dismissed as if, how dare you raise that? It's an emergency. This is really important. And everybody agrees this is an emergency and tracking and tracing effectively is really important. But to dismiss those concerns and to talk about keeping data for five to 20 years, right? This is really extreme. So I don't think this is just like, you know, um, oh, it's just the way the NHS has done things. I don't think that's true at all. I think there is a real wish to grab data 
Now that may be for, for well-meaning reasons, right? The more data we have, then the more we can know, but it may not be considering the other issues of inequality and personal data and, you know, moving into a, to a, to a world where this kind of discrimination, assuming there is, there is no vaccine and things go on, may actually bar certain groups quite clearly from certain kinds of professions and access to other goods. Great. Thank you very much. That That's very clear and and very a very interesting perspective, actually, especially that last uh, response. John, um, if I may ask you, we had a couple of questions, one from Alexander Brune and a couple of other questions about the R0 value of 5.7. Is that the international median or is it the median for the UK? Um, and is that when it was before before lockdown, so just to clarify the 5.7, uh, because some people are confused. They're saying, well, we thought the R0 currently in the UK is 0 0.7 to 0 0.9. So if you could clarify that, please. Right, so, so let me just follow up from the last question. So, if you, so, so, so first comment on, on the last question, is the history of the UK is during crisis, we go into centralized systems. So if you think back to all of the major crises, there's a lockdown, there's a centralization, that is the UK response to crisis. And the history of that response is that once it's being centralized, it's never decentralized. So once it's occurred, getting a, an alternative solution is a real problem. Now the, the reproduction rate figure, I was guilty of making an assumption over how people would understand what I was saying. Um, so the R5.7 figure is coming from some American work based on the Chinese data. And um, what the paper is saying is that if you just let the virus roll forward throughout a population, you will have an R factor of 5.7. So social distancing and all of the attempts to alter human behaviors to try to bring that below one. If you bring it below one, the virus will not be reproducing within the population. If you have it above one, it will be reproducing. If you have it at 5.7, you've got a major problem. Great, great. That makes that makes sense. And following on, uh, you know, uh, uh, on that, um, Willem, I wanted to ask you. Um, Sweden's had a very different strategy. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you think of that strategy? Has it worked in your view? And um, and what can we learn from that? I'm afraid what we can learn from it is how not to do these things. Um, so, so to some extent, Sweden's strategy has been started out well. I think there's there's a real um, there's a real point to be made that uh, having very strict lockdown measures is not necessarily what you want to have. You want to you want to start gently and then build it up slowly, which has not happened in this country. And so that's why we suddenly had to hit the pause button with a, with the lockdown on the twenty third of March. Um, but Sweden basically uh, started out very slowly in their in their in their response, and they didn't act on when they saw that there was a massive problem with uh, uh, the virus spreading in care homes, which is, I would say, perfectly, um, uh, which, which is something that you can expect to happen with a virus like COVID nineteen, which is something that you can expect from happening from the data that we had in January and February. So Sweden has has been um has chosen a route that I would not have chosen and it's it is clear that on a per capita basis their the number of deaths is now I think the highest in the world 
and even the country's lead epidemiologists this morning had to admit that mistakes had been made and they that they probably should have done something differently. And I and, and many of my colleagues have been saying this for, for months already that, that they were doing uh, following a very different strategy. Some people say that they do this to protect their economy. And just to clarify this, the Swedish National Bank is expecting a 7.7% contraction of GDP this year. So even though they have a very high number of deaths, they have not protected the economy in any uh, in any way that's more better right. than many other countries. Well, that, thank you. That that's been that's that's a really you know interesting answer and and very clear. And moving from that to you know the UK response. So Alexandros um, uh, has asked the, the debate about the UK response has been riddled with political biases. Um, and and you know. It, was it right? Was it wrong? Were we too late? Were we not too late? That aside, do you think we are ready now in the UK for uh, releasing lockdown as a scientist? Uh, no, I, I understand. I, I don't have a British passport, so I can't even vote in this country. <laughs> um, so um, we are we are in a very in a situation that's very different from a country like Germany or even France, because we have a lot more community transmission of COVID-19 than other countries. So you take a lot more risks in, in releasing lockdown, because if, if only a few of these people start spreading, then you, you, you start to look at large numbers of patients coming into hospitals very quickly again. Um, and so it is, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure whether now is the right time to exit from lockdown, uh, but I, I do, of course, see why at some point you want to do that, right? Um, my concern is that we don't really have that testing and tra tracing infrastructure. We do, we might have the testing infrastructure, but the tracing infrastructure is the, the one that really worries me, not just for the ethical concerns about the NHS X app, but also just the, the shoe letter epidemiology is just not there. And that uh, gives an opportunity for the virus to spread undetected. And then we can have a high number of cases in a very short period of time. And so putting you on the spot, do you think there is going to be a second wave? And and if, if so, how big? And then I'll come to John to answer that question also. Um, it very much depends on how, how it, it, I, I think maybe John is even better in answering this question because it very much depends on the behavior of people. If, if the population as a whole behaves responsibly, then the, the second, there, will, there might be a second wave, but it will be quite long. If people think that they can go back to life as it was in January, February this year, yes, then there will be a massive second wave. Okay, and, and John, what do you think? Right, okay, so I'm going to be very pessimistic here and say that there will definitely be a second wave. And there will be another pandemic, COVID-2022 or 2024. And the reason why I say we will have a second wave, we open our garden as part of the National Garden Scheme. And we were meant to be opening in late May. Uh, we were closed because we don't have insurance for covering open to the public. We had all over the garden closure, 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 the doors and you know, the gates to the garden 
were closed and sealed. A couple turned up saying, could they have a look, look round? And we said, no, we're closed. And, and, and we said, what about social distancing? And saying, well, no one's doing that anymore. That's, that's finished. Now, the problem we have is the British press. So the British press, when did they start talking about the reproduction number? In very late, late, um, very late March, early April, really, really late in the day. If you look, if you go to the Irish Republic, what you see is is two meter, two meter long signs saying this is two meters long distance. Go to the UK, you have A4 papers saying think about two, two, two meters. So there's an educational issue with the British press. When we began to re uh, relax social distancing, the British press was it's confused. So the message is confused. The Irish press was, this is what you need to do. Really clearly precise, you do this, you don't do something else. So what we have within the British press is they're busy trying to um, identify errors and political errors that they're busy trying to blame. But what they're not doing is producing a clear, consistent message. This is what you need to do to avoid people dying. Uh, that's a very, uh... You're obviously not a, a fan of the British press. <laughs> so uh, um, uh, moving on to a, another question to you. Um, you talked about predicting that there was going to be a pandemic and learning from the, the previous pandemic and that we didn't actually learn from the previous pandemic. What would you say are the top three um, lessons in your, in your estimation or in your, in, you know, in your mind that we could have learned from those from those previous pandemics. Right. So you're asking me uh, a typical Bryson question during an interview. Three things. So you have to be really well controlled and structured in your answer. So I do have a paper on this, which is coming out in July. So the three things we should have learned: um, multiple sourcing of core elements needed to support the national health service. So you're not over-reliant on a single country. So if one single country goes down, there are alternative sourcing. Making sure that you've got sufficient local demand. So if there's nothing can come in from outside the UK, there is sufficient local demand. So the company based in Limerick that was producing um, masks for the Irish Health Service has quadrupled in size from being a very small company to quite a, a large medium-sized sized company. And the third thing, this paper we have from press on African cities is the planning process is all about intensification and intensification of density within our cities. So our cities are becoming more dense. Now that planning argument about increasing density, all that does is increase transmission opportunities. So what we need is to have a debate about how we plan our cities and our housing units. So the housing units are more suitable for social distancing and isolation, and the cities themselves are planned to reduce virus transmission. At the moment, planning doesn't even think about that as an agenda item. Sorry, um, John, and you've just answered Bridget Bell's um, uh, question as well in that answer about the density and, and the importance of density. Uh, well, maybe one last question then. Um, Heather, do you think um, this issue of consent, et cetera, in the app um, speaks to broader ethical worries about public trust and transparency? Is it, is it part of a, a bigger problem that we 
as, as a British nation are worried about or that our government, a problem with our government in, in explaining these, these things? Uh, is there a trust issue here? Yeah, I, I think that there absolutely is the trust issue and a very fundamental one. So um, before I left the Nuffield Council, one of my last acts was to write with them, the whole council, like this is an unprecedented thing that we've done because we usually work behind the scenes with government, with ministers. We did a public open letter about just how far we think the um, transparency and accountability of the decision making has been. Right, so you can follow the science all you like, but that's a relatively meaningless phrase because when you actually make these decisions, these are political and ethical decisions. So science can advise, as the scientists have been keen to say, they can give all the kinds of information that they have to hand. But when you're making decisions between one course of action and another, uh, those are political and ethical decisions. And we've had virtually no transparency and accountability about what those decisions are, where and when. So you know, all of the things that John's just saying about how we plan our cities, how we go forward, what we think about travel, what we think about globalization, what we think about urban planning, those are all, political and ethical calls right and we need to have a debate about that to be blindly told we're following the science when with when policies are chopping and changing without um showing the working to the british people means that they're not doing um, a transparent job and um, whatever one thinks of the british press it's undoubtedly the case that trust in the government has dropped dramatically over the last 10 days uh, that can only continue and if if we don't have trust in what we've been told to do then that's going to impact on behavior and it, it could be catastrophic um, so um, I, I, I do think that the failure to communicate to be clear to be transparent um, actually comes from the top and there's been there's been less communication on those issues than we would normally expect in the ethics community um, about these issues and I, I really really worry about that and it's not about blaming it's about making the right decisions now so it's not about saying oh you did all this wrong right blaming doesn't help anybody so maybe later down the road it's time for an inquiry but right now it's about making sure that the decisions are fed into you by those who understand what's at stake and that they're done openly and transparently with proper public debate from stakeholders and not just fudged Great, and, and that has a spillover on the, the public trust, generally speaking, and it'd be a shame for a democracy to lose that uh, or to erode it, as you say. Look, uh, I'd like to really thank you all for a really, really interesting uh, discussion and excellent presentations, really great insights. Um, I, I, and I'd uh, like to also thank Dom for uh, co-chairing and for selecting all the questions Really appreciate it, Don. Um, Alex Young and uh, Sue Gilligan from the uh, IGI for all their hard work in preparing this, and also to our colleagues in, in uh, alumni and external relations and business engagement for all the work that they do to support this. Um, and really, finally, thanking you as the uh, audience for coming and for taking the time and for the great questions. I'm sorry that we couldn't answer all your questions, but I think actually we've covered in some of the answers a lot of the questions that were asked. Um, the team will email you uh, all for feedback and details of our future events and how to contact us to find more about the work of the IGI. And as a reminder, please uh, do join us and tell your friends and colleagues that the next Living with the Pandemic session is on Thursday the 18th, again between 12 and 1, and it's on doing things uh, differently, the new normal, and we'll be 
doing a couple of, uh, of sessions about that. Uh, so thank you very much and look forward to seeing you again uh, and take care and stay well.